The following message is from the Church at Greer Station. For more information, visit tcgreerstation.com. All right, so I've realized that every now and again, when I read a book, there's there's typically a nugget that sticks out from a particular book. There's some sort of lesson that you read from a particular book that just has a way of kind of hanging with you well after you read that book. Uh, one book that I think about, I read about three or four years ago, was a book summarizing, surprise, C.S. Lewis's teaching on the Christian life. And the book is called Lewis on the Christian Life. It's a really helpful book. Uh, in the opening chapter, the author Joe Rigney, he, he lays out what he, what he sees to be sort of foundational to C.S. Lewis's thinking what he calls the unavoidable either-or. The unavoidable either-or. And he builds it out like this. He says, each of us, this is true for each of us, you are here and now. Each of us, you are here and now. For me, there's only one Trevor Nathaniel Hoffman born February 26, 1987 in Greenville, South Carolina. Husband Emily, father to Jude, Nate Ruthie, one of the pastors at TCGS, unfortunately afflicted with Gamecock fandom. There's only one of me, right? And there's only one of you. All of you, you have an infinite overlap of particulars about your super specific situation, and there's only one of you. You have been divinely appointed to the the very place that you occupy, present tense, right now. But you're not alone, because God is also here and now. God is not aloof. He's not indifferent. He's not millions and millions of miles away. Rather, he is here with an infinite surplus of attention span to give attention to the infinite overlap of the particulars in each of our lives. But that's not all. Because God is creator and Lord, he demands all of you. He demands every aspect of your life, every corner of your heart, every cell and mitochondria and atom that makes up you. Jesus demands all of it. He wants you. He demands you and he wants you and he wants to show his goodness and his life and his happiness. He he wants to share these things with us. The author uses a quote from Lewis where he says, I love this. It would have been on the screen, but you have to just listen closely. He says, God loves into existence wholly superfluous or unnecessary. God loves into existence wholly superfluous creatures in order that he may love and perfect them. God loves us There was no reason that we should exist other than God loved us into existence so that he could perfect us. It's pretty great, right? God made us to make us, in a manner of speaking. And so here's where we find ourselves in our our unique situations, whatever that might be. Every moment of every day, you are confronted with a capital C, choice. What we might call the choice. The unavoidable either or. We either place God at the center of our lives or something else. It's either the Lord Jesus sitting supremely in our hearts or fill in the blank. And it's not just one choice that we're confronted with. It's an unending succession of choices. Every moment of every day in every situation, we are continually confronted by God himself in each detail of each specific circumstance. The author Joe Rigney says this, And so the choice, capital C, the choice confronts you. Receive God or cling to yourself and try to be God. Surrender and become a son of God or set up on your own and try to replace him. Be happy with his happiness or turn inward to the broken cistern that is your own soul. 
Or to say it differently, we are always presented with one of two options. To say to, to God, thy will be done, or for us to turn inward on ourselves and say, my will be done. We might say that this, it, one of the reasons I love Lewis and constantly quote him and recommend him, is I just feel like he is like a heart doctor. He just understands how humans operate. He just understands human nature. And I found this to be a, a profoundly helpful sort of concept that, that every moment of every day we, we are offered this choice. It is either God's will or Trevor's will in my specific situation. And there's, there's, there's no instance to where this, this choice is not at play. We might be able to say that this choice is central to what it means to be a Christian. And to press further, it is what it means to be human. To yield to the love of God, the one who made us, submitting to reality, submitting to God, and allowing him to change and conform and perfect us by his grace. Now, as I mentioned, as a church, we're studying the Gospel of Matthew. The Gospel of Matthew is a a biography of sorts of of Jesus of Nazareth. The first four books of the New Testament are are different takes on Jesus' life. Each of the authors relay the same events and have uh, the, the same kind of key events in mind, but each of them have their own angle that they take in the presentation of these events. Matthew, in particular, in these final chapters, is about telling the story of God's anointed king who came to die and achieve victory through suffering and death. We've called this series The Crucified King. And in the passage that Mikey just read, what we see is this awesome picture of Jesus, where Jesus is confronted with the choice. Jesus is confronted with the choice. The same choice that you and I are confronted with moment by moment. And this this passage is an astounding display of Jesus' humanity, where Jesus is confronted with the choice. So we're going to work through this passage, and we're going to land the plane on two really important ideas that we need to walk away with from this passage. Let's look at verse 30 through verses 35 again. And when Jesus and the disciples had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus said to them, You will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter answered him, Though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you, this very night, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, Even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said, Hear, hear. All said the same. So the passage that we looked at, not last week, not because of COVID, but the, the, the week before that, the passage we looked at, Jesus was celebrating Passover with his disciples. Jesus celebrates Passover with his disciples, and he reinterprets Passover for us. He shows us that Passover was ultimately pointing to Jesus and what he was going to do on the cross. We're told as the narrative moves forward that they go out singing the Hallel. It's a hymn, Psalms 113 through 118. And as they're going out, and Jesus is is just as he said would happen at the beginning of chapter 26. He's, he's being delivered up to the authorities who would take his life. He breaks some bad news to his disciples. He says, all of you are going to fall away because of me this night. And then he quotes Zechariah, which is quoted also when Jesus first arrives into Jerusalem in Matthew 21. And in Zechariah, the image is of a Messiah figure who's going to be struck and whose followers would disperse. Jesus tells his disciples, when, when, when they lay the boom on me, you guys are going to skedaddle. One of them, we're told, Peter starts crowing like a rooster. Not me, Jesus. All of these other schmucks, they'll probably abandon you. I know, I know what these guys are like. I've been around them. We've, had, we've gone fishing together. They tell dirty jokes. They don't have great hygiene. They're probably going to fall away. Not me, Jesus. I 
crowing like a rooster, I will be the one who sticks by your side, thick and thin. I've heard it said before that Peter has a foot-shaped mouth, which feels pretty accurate. Jesus then tells them, literally, you guys are going to stumble over me. And the, the word stumble here literally means stumble. It's like trip over a rock. Like the same way that the grass shark gets you when you're kind of playing out in the yard and you stumble and you trip over. Jesus says, you guys will trip over me. You will stumble over me. Because you're still expecting the Messiah to be one who, who's going to bring a physical kingdom to oust the kingdom of Rome. And you still don't yet understand what it means for me to be a crucified king. But he assures them that they, they will learn what it means for him to be a crucified king. But, but something I love that Jesus says even after Peter starts crowing and Jesus reassures that this very night you will deny me three times. I love this. Verse 32. Jesus says, but after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Jesus anticipates that these disciples who will scatter and skedaddle and everything else will be restored. And The Gospel of Mark, one of the things that I love about the resurrection account is it says... Uh, after Jesus is resurrected, he says, go tell Peter. Go tell Peter that I've come back to life. The one who is very confident he wouldn't betray him. Of course, we'll see in a couple of weeks that Peter does exactly this. That that very night as Jesus is arrested, Peter denies Jesus three times before the rooster crows. Jesus promises them, you will stumble, but he has hope. You will be restored. Verse 36, let's keep reading. Then Jesus went with him to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Now, again, I find this moment to be incredibly, incredibly powerful because we're given a glimpse into Jesus' own heart as he approaches the final moments before he is betrayed and crucified. Something that I find to be really, really powerful about this, and as I was studying it last week, I found myself just like moved by the thought of this, that Jesus himself is sorrowful, that he says he's so sorrowful that he's, that he's sorrowful even unto death. One commentator said that sorrowful even unto death doesn't even actually account for the strength of the words that are used there in the original language. It's amazing for me to consider, like as we were saying a moment ago, that Jesus was betrayed and murdered, and that Jesus, as a man, experienced a sorrow that made him want to die. One of the things that Aaron and I have talked about in, in the past is, as a potential teaching series in the future, is something along the lines of, why, why am I a Christian? Like, why do we follow Jesus? What, what about the Christian faith clicks for us? You know, there's, there's the above-the-clouds reasons that the Scripture tells us. You know, the Holy Spirit moves in our hearts and, and opens it up. But the below-the-clouds reasons. Why, why are we Christians? What about the faith kind of catches us and makes sense for us? And the thing that makes the most sense for me, the, the thing about Christianity that makes it so powerful and compelling is that Jesus wept and felt sad. That, that the, the, the one we worship was sorrowful, even unto death. And it, and it just gives a completely different light to when you, when you read the Psalms that say things like, God uh, catches every one of our tears in a bottle. God, God knows our pain and our suffering. In a way, God 
knows our pain and our suffering because God himself suffered. Jesus was sorrowful even unto death. Charles Spurgeon, an old dead preacher guy, he said, a Jesus who never wept can never wipe away our tears. A Jesus who never wept can never wipe away our tears. And in a, a, a land of tears, in a time of tears, I found that to be profoundly, profoundly powerful. We're told that Jesus is sorrowful because he understands what he is preparing to step into. Jesus prays, let this cup pass from me. Now the cup that Jesus is speaking about here is probably a reference to the prophets Isaiah and Jeremiah. We see this language also used in the book of Revelation. The cup is associated with God's judgment, the cup of God's wrath. So, so God in his, his goodness and his justice, he, he looks at all of the sorrow causing human evil in the world. And because God is good and just, he punishes it. He punishes all injustice and evil. And the image that's used in the prophets is of this cup that is filled with God's wrath, that is poured out on those who are rebellious and arrogant and who reject God and choose sin. And what Jesus understands as he's stepping into his final moments before the crucifixion, he's feeling the weight of the reality of God's wrath being poured out on him on the cross. Jesus looks at it and he says, My Father, if there is any other way that this cup, this cup of your judgment can pass from me, please let it be known. If there's any plan B, please unfold that right now. But he says, nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Jesus sees and dreads the misery of crucifixion, the prospect of dying, but worse, being exposed to God's just judgment. Jesus says, if if there's any other option, make it be known. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Now, now something that's really important to point out here that feels like a really, really fine, even arbitrary distinction, but it's very important, something we, we, we need to get very clear on in this passage, is that this is Jesus speaking in his humanity. All right, so the scriptures teach that God is triune, that God is a, a triune God, that there's the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, three persons and one God. Each are fully God, but each are distinct, and they're their own person. This is the language that the church has developed from the scriptures over the years to sort of Help us think through God's, the way that God has revealed himself to be. That God is distinct, that God is one, he's three in one, but he's distinct and exists in three persons. Although they're distinct, the Godhead is behind anything and everything else the Godhead does. So that there's one will in the Godhead. The Father, Son, and the Spirit, they all have the same will. In other words, we tend to sort of have this caricature in our minds that the Father is the one who kind of came up with this idea to send Jesus he sort of issues the command from on high and makes Jesus, whether he likes it or not, go bear the sin of humanity. But that's not actually the teaching of the Scriptures. The Scriptures would have us to see that the Father and the Son's will and their desires are in perfect alignment. All right, so when Jesus is talking about not my will being done, but your will, Jesus is speaking as, well, one of us. Because Jesus, being fully God, also possesses two natures. God is both God and man. He, is, he has a human nature and a divine nature. And so Jesus, in his human nature, was born of the Virgin Mary at 10.02 p.m. on a Thursday, 8 pounds, 19 inches long, you know, whatever that might have been. Gave his mom heartburn, had a head full of hair, whatever that might have been. That's Jesus in his humanity, right? And so when Jesus prays this prayer, what we see is Jesus as the man, Jesus as our brother, saying, not my will, but your will being done. Elsewhere in the scriptures, we see Jesus say things like, I come and give my life of my own accord. 
This is, this is I, I'm fully on board with this deal. I, I want to come and give myself for my people. So even though that feels like a fine and arbitrary distinction, it is very uh, important for us to be careful and articulate. This is Jesus speaking in his human nature. Verse 40. And he came to the disciples and found the disciples sleeping. And he said to Peter, So, could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may never enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass, if this uh, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Sleep, take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Now one thing that's really apparent from this section of verses is the disciples' frailty. We see that the disciples, if you've ever been in this situation where you're up late at night and you're sitting and you're trying to pray, the, the sleepy eyelid thing happens and your eyes just sort of have a mind of their own, right? Jesus sees this happening to the disciples. Yeah, some commentators speculate that we're intended to see a disciples, the, the sleepiness of soul that they still have, that they're still sleepy to the idea that Jesus is the crucified king. That's one suggested reading of this passage. There in, in verse Uh, 41, Jesus says, watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Jesus is calling them to vigilance, but at the same time, he recognizes that, there is, that, that, that we are frail, uh, broken, sinful creatures in need of perfection. I think it's appropriate for us to, to see when Jesus says the flesh is weak, that he is speaking firsthand. He knows the weakness of flesh because Jesus is a man, and Jesus has flesh, skin, bones. Three times we're told in this passage that Jesus prays, contrasted probably with Peter's three denials. But the thing here that's so amazing, one commentator noted this, is that in this passage, in verse 42, Jesus' will moves. Do you see it? Contrast verse 39 with verse 42, where Jesus says, nevertheless, if, if, this, can, if this cup can pass for me, make it go away. Nevertheless, nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. Verse 42, he prays a second time, and we see the movement of his will. My Father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. We see Jesus making the choice almost in real time in these scriptures. He has yielded himself to God's will for his life. All right, so here's our takeaway. And what is an incredibly intimate and dense and intense moment in the scriptures where we see Jesus' will move, we see that Jesus is two things for us. The first thing Jesus is, is this. Jesus is our example and how we are to respond to the choice. Jesus is our example and how we are to respond to the choice. The temptation for me is to stand up here and say, especially these days, it's good for us to be reminded that it's about surrendering our will to God, as if that hasn't always been the issue for humanity. This has always been the case for us, that we need to learn obedience and we need to be perfected. In some ways, that's kind of the Christian life, is the, the call to embrace the choice as Jesus embraced the choice. There's a couple of amazing quotes from uh, the book of Hebrews. The author of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 10 says this, 
Speaking of Jesus, for it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, and bringing many sons to glory, which by the way is just an unreal way to talk about salvation, bringing many sons to glory, that's what what Jesus came to do, and bringing many sons to glory, he should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Verse 14, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Jesus takes on flesh and blood, the scriptures say, because we have flesh and blood. And the author of Hebrews says it's only fitting. It only makes sense. You do the calculus. This is the only conclusion that you can come to. Because he loves us and you have flesh and blood, it's fitting that Jesus would take on flesh and blood to redeem us. But interestingly, it says in verse 10, that the founder of our salvation is made perfect through suffering. This word perfect here, I think when we read it, maybe our mind goes to something like moral perfection, like a a moral not being taintedness. But this word can also be translated something like whole or complete or mature. As a man, the scriptures tell us Jesus had to learn maturity. Jesus had to learn obedience in his humanity. Isn't that wild to think about? But, but isn't that incredibly hopeful for us? That we have a brother, an older brother, who went before us and is our example in how to do exactly that? To learn obedience? Specifically, he says, through suffering. I think there's also something worth pointing out here that, that is really, really crucial. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15. The author says, We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. It's the point I was making earlier about Jesus being able to wipe away our tears because he himself has wept. Jesus can sympathize with our weaknesses, back pains and tweaked knees and messed up shoulders. You know, Jesus, in some ways, can relate to those things, Right? We don't have a high priest who is indifferent, who is incapable, who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but rather one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Jesus was tempted to sin, yet withstood it. Jesus was able to maintain moral perfection. And so Jesus is an example on on what it looks like to live a holy and righteous life. He shows us how we're to respond to that choice. To the reality that you are here and you are now in your specific place and in your infinite overlap of your particulars. You have been divinely appointed to this very moment, whatever that moment is for you. God is there. He is not aloof. He is not indifferent. He has an infinite attention to detail. And God wants you. God wants to make his life and his goodness and his happiness your own goodness, life and happiness. And so wherever we find ourselves, whatever your situation is, Every moment of every day, we're confronted with the choice. And our older brother, Jesus, shows us how how we're to respond to that. God, I want your will to be done in my life and not my will. And, And this super specific situation, this instance, I want your will to be done in my life, not my will. And so the question for us is, what is that for you? Where are you being confronted with the choice, the unavoidable either or? And what does it look like to walk as one filled with Jesus' own spirit here? How can you cultivate watchfulness for the choice and be ready to respond as our brother Jesus responded? This is helpful as as we think about the, the intensity of this moment that Jesus experiences. 
that even for us in the most intense, unimaginable circumstances, Jesus shows us how we are to live and move and have our being. I think of a, a brother in our church, Adam Cochran, a brother that I love dearly who's a part of our body. He is a man who bears up under same-sex attraction. And when it would be incredibly easy for him to choose that, to choose that lifestyle, instead he has chosen fidelity to God and God's design for him, God's will for his life. And he is devoting himself to being a voice to encourage brothers and sisters who are bearing up under the same sin struggles. And for that, I celebrate my brother, who is an example to us what it looks like to be confronted with the choice and to choose God's will over our own will. So Jesus is your example. He shows you how to respond to the choice. What does that look like for you? And how might you follow Jesus' example now? But most fundamentally, most foundationally, even more importantly than Jesus being an example, the second thing we take away from this passage is that Jesus is a gift. You know what Gethsemane literally means? Oil press. Oil press. And we're given a picture of the Lord Jesus stepping into an oil press, sorrowful and troubled. In Luke's account, Jesus is under such duress that it says he literally sweats blood. And why would Jesus do this? Why would Jesus endure this? Why would he enter the oil press and allow his life to be pressed from him? And the answer is because Jesus is a gift. Jesus tells his disciples earlier in the gospel that I came to give my life as a ransom for many, he says to his disciples, to his friends, to those he knew he would betray him. He says, I came to give my life as a ransom for many, for my life to be pressed from me. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him would not perish, would not experience the cup of God's wrath being poured out, because Jesus experiences it for us. Jesus has drunk to the dregs the cup of God's judgment for us. And, and the, only, the, the only way we access this is by owning the fact that I am deserving of God's wrath and that there is nothing I can do to make that cup go away apart from trusting Jesus, apart from looking on his obedience and his work and saying, take my life, I, I believe, I trust, and, and I, and I want to follow after your example. In this scripture, we get this beautiful glimpse of Jesus' bravery and his obedience to the Father. We see the Father and the Son's grand design from of old. This has always been the plan for Jesus to come die on the cross for you. And so we think back to Matthew 26 when we're told, a woman of the city anoints Jesus with perfume. It's because she gets it. She, she understands who this Jesus is and what he's come to do. So why do we gather on Sunday nights and why do we worship Jesus? Why do we pray to him and wear crosses in his honor and weep, get all weepy when we sing songs about him? It's because Jesus is a gift. Because Jesus was confronted with the choice of drinking the cup of God's judgment and chose it for us. And so, friends, the takeaway for us is to just recognize that in this amazing scripture, we see the wholeness of the Christian life. The Christian life is about growing more deeply and loving Jesus as a gift and more ardently by the Spirit's help following his example. So let's do a few things here in the next few moments. Let's do a few things. 
I'm going to pray to conclude our time. Uh, and then the, the guys are going to come up and, and play a little music. And just in, in those moments, would you just ask for illumination? Would you just pray, Holy Spirit, would you identify those places in my own heart and life where I'm being confronted with a choice? And Holy Spirit, give me the strength to respond as the Lord Jesus responded to that choice. And then secondly, after we spend some time praying and asking for the Lord, just point those things out in us and to, to move us by his spirit towards obedience, we're going to stand and sing. Sing to a Jesus who has drunk this cup so that we would never have to. And sing to a Jesus who is the ancient of days, who orchestrated all of this from the beginning of time so that we could be gathered together as a chosen people. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we come to you thanking you for being our brother. We come to you thanking you for taking on flesh and experiencing the, the frailty of the human life. For emptying yourself of your divine rights and choosing the life of a servant for being obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. We pray as we consider these final chapters of the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus, that we would be overcome, just overcome with just deep affection for the, for the, the, the portrait that we're given of you and your, your kindness your willingness to embrace this for us. Jesus, in your obedience to the Father, we pray that we would find strength to also give our lives in obedience to the Father. Because of your love for God, you chose his will for your life instead of your own. And we pray that we would have the the, the same whatever to do that as well by your spirit, Jesus. I pray for watchfulness that we, that we would not be a sleepy church like these disciples. Would you make us watchful for those moments and those particular instances, however tiny or, or however excruciating or however big, whatever they might be, whatever adjective we can use to describe those, would you help us to be watchful and to see those and to choose your will as the Lord Jesus chose your will. But most of all, we do pray for just, just such a, a deep gratitude for what Christ has done for us. There's a fixation on the gospel and of Christ's mercy, his willingness to offer his life as a ransom for us. We love you and we pray all of these things in Jesus' name.